Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 2, 3. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them, he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wild life of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. And everything having breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. I hate moving. Anybody else in here with me? Yeah, okay, good, some of my people. Um, we've moved quite a few times in our uh, life, especially earlier on in our marriage, when you feel like you're moving in and out of apartments, trying to settle down. When we first moved to Decatur back in 2020, we stayed in a rental for like the first year because we wanted to kind of learn the city a little bit, figure out where we wanted to live, all that jazz. Um, but the worst part about that was knowing that we were going to essentially have to move twice. Um, the house that we're in now, we don't plan to move. I know things could change. I know, you know, life can happen. Um, but as it stands now, our goal is to stay in the house that we are in now until we die. Uh, because I hate moving. <laughs> Again, I know some of you know that's naive, but... It's the hope. Um, moving is miserable. It disrupts your whole life, everything about it. Um, everything feels upside down. It's like it consumes you. It's why one of the first things you ask people once they've moved is, hey, have you settled in yet, right? Um, have you recovered from everything being disrupted? It's one thing to physically be in the space with your items, right? You've got everything technically in the house. You've got you know the bed out so you can sleep. You've got the big furniture, but then there's boxes piled up. Um, you've got stuff you've not really settled in. You've not made it your home. Um, it, that, that's another, another thing, and sometimes it takes time, you know, to get pictures on the wall, uh, to find out which drawer you want the silverware to go in, to find out where everything should go, what room. I mean, we've moved our kids in different rooms. Is they like, oh, this room didn't work, and they need to move here, and so let's move beds, all that stuff, right? Sometimes it takes a while, but at some point, the hope is that you're able to just settle in, take up residence, and rest, now, if you're familiar with homeownership, you know that that doesn't mean the work is just done, right? The work, in one sense, is just beginning, but you have made it your home. You've begun to rest and hopefully begun the life-giving work of cultivating an environment of peace and happiness within those four walls. And I mention this idea because I think this picture uh, might be one of the best um, illustrations to help us understand what God is doing in Genesis chapter 1 in this week of creation. God is moving into his home. And at the end of the six days, he's got everything in its place. He's put the birds in the sky where they go. He's put the fish in the sea. He's put the land animals on the land. He has the land uh, set up. He's got this garden. He's got humanity in the midst of the garden. Everything is in its proper order. He's unpacked, so to speak. 
And so God settles in. He takes up residence. He Shabbats, as it's called, or Sabbaths. The word in the CSB is translated that God rested. And this is what our text today is building us up to. In fact, that's what the entire first chapter of Genesis is working towards. A God who makes a dwelling place, a home for he and humans to live together in and to partner together in this never-ending Sabbath, this never-ending rest to fill the earth with this ever-expanding glory, making a house of peace and belonging. But unfortunately, as we'll see, the story does take a dark turn. But God, because he always keeps his promises, which is the theme of Genesis, never gives up on this project. So good morning again, church. As I've said already, my name is Joel. I'm grateful to each of you for being here. I hope nobody slipped in the parking lot um, out there this morning. If you did, um, Sue somebody else. I don't know. Maybe the Methodist church. They've got, sorry, inside joke that will probably carry forever. As those of my friends know, I never let jokes go. Um, but yeah, um, if you're hopping in our live feed, hope you're uh, having fun, uh, eating snacks, and tuning in with us this morning. Um, so as you can see, we're continuing in our Genesis series. Like I said, we're and you, you heard it read, but Genesis chapter one verse twenty six through chapter two verse three. So the chapter break kind of messes you up sometimes, but uh, if you're following the CSB notebook, you'll see the the break is actually in verse three um, is where kind of the first big large creation narrative ends, and so that's where we're going to be working our way through today. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is one of the is the very first book, right? So it's easy. Um, as throughout the series, you don't have to fumble through and act like you know where you're going. It's cool. Just uh, turn to the first page and you'll be able to find it. Um, we're going to be in the CSB version. You can follow along however you want. We will have verses on the screen for you. Um, and also you can follow through on your phone or in your notebooks, however you'd like. Um, so quick review to catch us up if you weren't here the last couple of weeks or you forget stuff like I do. Um, if you remember in Genesis chapter one, verse one, we learned that the primary character of Genesis is who? Y'all can tell me. God. All right. Y'all can talk back to me. Cool. Um, the primary character of the book of Genesis is God. The whole book is first and foremost a theological narrative about God and how he works in the world. The first week um, and last week, we saw that God is the powerful creator, right? He's the one who speaks creation into existence. He brings order from chaos. Um, he's bringing uh, intentionality and purpose to the created order. He brings life from nothing. And then with everything that he creates, what does he do? He steps back and he calls it what? Good. It's the Hebrew word tov. Um, it means beautiful, good, lovely. Um, and so every time he creates, he steps back and calls it good. And so last week we worked our way through the first five and a half days of creation. Okay. So we got through the first five days and we started day six. We saw light and darkness, day and night, uh, dry land and plants, the skies, the seas, the birds, the fish, animals that live on the land. And all of this was leading to a culmination of two things. And this is what we need to see. There's two things that kind of come towards the end of this narrative. First of all, the creation of humans, which were God's image bearers, and then God settling in or resting on the seventh day after he completed his work. So that's pretty much what we're going to be looking at during our time together this morning. Um, I don't really have points for us. Sometimes I've got a clear outline and direction, um, but this morning uh, we're just going to kind of try to spend some time understanding how the original hearers of Genesis would have received this narrative um, and how it points us to God's good plan to use humanity and spreading his glory to the ends of the earth. So uh, let's dive in. 
Um, I want to give a little bit of context to help us uh, before we start looking at the text. Um, to understand this creation narrative as the first hearers would have, uh, we have to immerse ourselves in their world. We've talked about this, right? Genesis was written in a specific time and culture, and God chose to communicate through that. So uh, learning that culture can be helpful for us. Um, if you grew up as an Israelite um, and you were very familiar with the temple system, which is what everything revolved around, economic life, cultural life, everything revolved around the, the tabernacle when it was um, portable and then the temple later. Um, if you grew up in that, if you grew up in the festivals that happened um, in the, the Jewish calendar, then as you read Genesis, it would be very um, clear what was going on in this first chapter of Genesis. So I'm going to make a claim very clearly and state it, and then I'll kind of explain myself. In this first chapter, God is setting up for himself a cosmic temple in which he and humanity can dwell, commune with each other, and partner together to spread his glory throughout the whole universe. So the main claim I'm making is that Genesis 1, the creation narrative, is primarily telling us that God is setting up a cosmic temple. Now, I could spend a lot of time unpacking this. We could spend hours just on this, making connections from Genesis 1 to Exodus and Leviticus and down through the Hebrew scriptures. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Um, I'm asking you to trust me a little bit and then go do your own research and go study it for yourself. I'd love to have more conversations. Um, but scholars much smarter than me, like John Walton, uh, Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, G.K. Bill, um, numerous Jewish scholars who speak the language of the Old Testament actually understand it. They have made these connections quite obvious. Um, some, I'll point out just quickly, if you read through the Psalms, uh, you're going to find numerous passages that refer to all of creation as God's dwelling place or his home, right? I've made the earth my footstool. It's God taking up residence within this cosmic world. If you familiarize yourself with the idea of the temple um, among the ancient Israelites, you'll see that much of the pattern was after the creation story. The temple was full of floral-like ornaments. Like if you walked in it, it would be very garden-like. There would be a lot of garden imagery. Um, if uh, th this, isn't, this isn't a reach, it's pretty clear. Um, there's, there's significant clues in the way that Moses creates the, the tabernacle um, later in Exodus. I'm going to show you this slide. I know that none of you can read this, and that's okay. Um, if you want this, we'll have it linked on the app underneath the sermon. Um, but there's three uh, sections here. One is creation in Genesis 1. Um, one is the creation of the tabernacle in Exodus. And then one is the um, creation of the temple when King Solomon did that later, okay? So the tabernacle was the portable uh, model, um, and then later we have a more permanent uh, temple. Uh, but what happens in each of them um, is in creation, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters at creation. You have the Word of God introducing seven different days, um, uh, the last of which is signified by what we've already talked about a little bit, but the Sabbath, the rest, God settling into and bringing his presence into creation. And then in the making of the first tabernacle, when Moses fashions it, first while Moses is, is told that, hey, I'm going to show you the, the cosmic one and you're going to make it after the pattern. The, the, the tabernacle wasn't meant to be the full thing. It was a, a picture of something more cosmic. And, and in that, you have seven different speeches of God speaking to Moses of what they were to do. And guess what the seventh one is about? Remember the Sabbath day. And it's about the Sabbath. Um, as the tabernacle is completed and Moses goes through these seven ceremonial dedications, seven times you hear that it was completed just as God said. Very similar to the Genesis story when it says, and it was so. And the last of which 
what happens in the, the, that narrative is God settles in and his glory fills the presence of the temple. In Hebrews, like I said, um, we just went through Hebrews. We explicitly read that the tabernacle Moses made was simply a model of the real cosmic one. That he was literally shown this pattern of the cosmic temple and, and that's what he fashioned the model after. But it was never about the model. It was always meant to be God and his people dwelling and working together to spread his glory throughout the whole cosmos, okay? And that's clear. So even if some of that, you're like, I don't really follow all that, that's fine. Get the big picture. That is what is going on in this creation story. God is setting up his dwelling place on the whole earth in which he plans to, to settle in and to commune and partner with humans to spread his glory and goodness throughout the whole universe. That is incredibly significant because if we understand that, then we can start to understand the significance of the claims made about the creation of humanity in this text. See, uh, temples weren't unique to Israel. There were a lot of temples in the ancient Near East. Um, there were so many temples set up to different deities and, and different gods. But the, uh, Israel had something, the temple in Israel didn't have something that every other temple had, which was a statue of the God. There was always within the temple this statue, this representation. It would look, we've, we've uncovered some of them historically, and, and they would have clothes on them. It was almost like a mannequin. It would try to image this, this God, this so-called deity. But the temples in Israel never had that. And the reason why is because it was modeled after creation. See, if in creation, the entire cosmos is the temple, then the likeness or the representation of God is not a statue, but living and breathing humans. When we read here that humans are made in the image of God, that is the, the picture that would have come to mind. The image or likeness of God. So let's read verses 26 through 28 and see if we can't pick up on the significance of these verses. Then God said... Let us make man or humanity in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Humanity is the living and breathing with the, the breath of God. The living and breathing statue or image or idol of God on the earth. That is why it is a big deal and why God says, don't make any graven images of me. They already exist and I made them. I'm not meant to be represented by wood and stone and things and creations of human hands. I have already fashioned and formed and breathed into humans the breath of life. The way this is written too is, is massive because every single human is tasked with this divine call. In the surrounding cultures, it wasn't unheard of for certain humans to be called to be the image or likeness or even sons is what it came to be called, of sons of God, to represent deities. But guess who it always was? It was the kings, the powerful, the wealthy. 
This is revolutionary. That every single human, no matter your social status, no matter your ethnicity, no matter where you were born, that you have the image of God stamped upon you. You have a divine calling, a royal priesthood to represent God to the entire world, to work and to keep and to cultivate life wherever God has you. This was what Adam is told in the garden. We'll see it next week, Genesis 2. He's placed in the garden to work and to keep it. That's the same exact words that is used of the priest in the temple later when they're told to work and to keep within the temple. This is like a model. You get the priest in the temple working and keeping and bringing order to the temple and all these festivals and keeping the calendar. That is a, this like microcosm model of what all of humanity was meant to be as we work and we keep and we cultivate life in God's cosmic temple. Out of all God's creation, the mountains, the skies, waterfalls, chasms, canyons, the oceans, God chose humanity to be his likeness and representation in the world. This should blow our minds. Like as I've been, as I've been wrestling through this and meditating on this, I've been like, what the heck? What is man that you are mindful of him? God has created you to join him in this creation project. They were, they were supposed to take the presence of God that existed in the garden, this joy and union and life, and to spread it to the ends of the earth. We'll see it a little bit closer next week. This garden in Eden was meant to be expanded to the ends of the earth, being fruitful. That includes childbearing, but it wasn't limited to it. It was also just being fruitful and cultivating life. The word subdue of the earth. We hear that like really strong. Have dominion is another way it's translated. In this context, it means to steward, to cultivate, to create a place of flourishing. And this was the goal of humanity. God creates this. He steps back and says, not only is it good, but it is very good indeed. And he completes his work and he rests. Again, this idea of rest is different than where our brain goes, okay? This isn't just vegging out on Netflix after a long day of labor, okay? That's what we think of when we think of rest. This is more like the idea of a settling into a home. And this idea of Sabbath or settling or resting would permeate the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, this is where also uh, some Hebrew, and this is, again, people much smarter than me. I don't know Hebrew, so I'm not going to claim to. Um, but in the Hebrew, there's a clear play with the word seven. Um, a lot of us understand that the word seven can mean completeness. Um, there's also a word play with the word seven, completeness, and Sabbath, all in Hebrew, sound very similar, look very similar. And this comes from the early pages of Genesis. Even in the English, you can see this relationship between Sabbath and seven. And that's what I want you to see. Uh, look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, the end of our text we're looking at. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. And you see this repetition. We see repetition. The author wants us to see something. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested or Sabbathed on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it, he rested or settled in from all his work of creation. On the seventh day, on the seventh day, God blessed the seventh day. 
So what is going on? God creates this cosmic temple in which to dwell. He creates humans as his image and tasks them with partnering with him to spread his glory. And then on the seventh day, he takes up residence, settles in this cosmic temple to live with humanity. That's why we see God walking among the garden later. What's interesting about this seventh day in the narrative is there's something different. Every other day ended with evening came and then morning the first day. Or evening came and then morning the second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. But the seventh day, that phrase doesn't exist. It is intentionally written to start the story of a day of settling in, of Sabbathing, of rest that's never meant to stop. And again, we hear rest and we think absence of work. Rest is not the absence of work. Rest is the absence of tiresome, laborsome work. Okay? Um, it's, it's more like the idea of settling in a home. It doesn't mean the work's done. But without sin, this is good, life-giving work full of tove and beauty. We've, we've got glimpses of this. Maybe you've at your job or in a creative project, you've, you've just been, maybe we call it in the flow, right? And man, you're just rolling and you might have a very productive day and you look up after a long day of work and it feels life giving, not life draining. And you say, man, that was good. And not every day is like that because we have sin, right? We're about to get there. But that's a picture of what it was meant to be like. That was the plan that the Ruach or the wind or the spirit of God, the breath of God would, would fuel this work of humanity and we would spread this eternal Sabbath rest, this life-giving, joyous partnership with God forever. But we know the story and that's not what happens. Humanity was called to rule over the animals and instead they're ruled by one, the snake, the serpent. Instead of surrendering to God's good rule and reign, being content to be made in God's likeness, in his image. Instead, we say, that's not enough. I want to be God. I don't want to just know good and evil abstractly and trust what you say it is. I want to determine it. That's the, the idea behind the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's determine it for themselves. It's rejecting the divine calling that God has placed on our lives. Because we're no different and Adam and Eve reject that, and in doing so, what happens? They separate themselves from God's presence, and they're banished outside of Eden. We see two cherubim placed there to guard uh, the garden after that. It's another hint about the temple, because it's the only other place you see cherubim mentioned in the scriptures is either in the temple as like these models, or when you see heavenly visions of the eternal throne room, what do you see? Cherubim there. Placed there to guard the presence of God for the good of the people because they're sin. So if they enter in the presence of God, it's over. Like that was for the good of the people. And instead of spreading God's glory and goodness outside of Eden, they spread the curse. No longer can they work in a restful state. We're told man will be at odds with the ground. He'll be fighting it to, to bring food and, and, and the sustaining of life for the rest of, of, of creation as we know it. Uh, no longer can being fruitful, being fruitful and multiply only be in joy. Like the original intention was to be fruitful and multiply, was, which is crazy. And I'm not trying to be weird, but like the act of procreation that God made it a joyous thing where we partner with them in that. But now we have uh, pain in this. It's not only that women will bring forth children in great pain, but we have infertility. We have miscarriages, untimely deaths of children. Like we look at them and say, the world's not meant to be this way. 
But God in his mercy still shows grace. And throughout the narrative of scripture, he won't let his people forget what the goal always was. It's why he calls Abraham, Genesis 12, we're gonna get there. And he calls this nation of Israel, and you know what he calls them? A kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. He says they're supposed to be a light to the nations, just like the Garden of Eden existed and it was meant to spread. So Israel was meant to be this microcosm of what humanity was supposed to be and spread it to the other nations. It's why he sets up this portable tabernacle among them to signify his dwelling with them. There's all these pictures of the tabernacle and the temple later um, that point to Eden where you have these concentric circles of, of the land and then the uh, Eden and then go, the garden in Eden and then in the, the tabernacle you have the courtyard and then you have the, the, the tabernacle and then in that you have the Holy of Holies and guess what's outside of that? A menorah that's meant to represent the tree of life. Like it's all this imagery here and he's reminding them of Genesis 1. He sets up feasts and festivals. The word in Genesis 1 that says the sun and moon were given for signs and seasons. The word seasons there is not winter, fall, spring, summer. The only way that word is used in the rest of the scriptures is to describe the festivals in the Jewish calendar that was kept with all these feasts that guess what they, the calendar was set off, all these multiples of seven. Um, there's, there's every seven days you're to Sabbath or rest. Why? Because God did it. That's literally what we're told. That's what Moses said. It's pretty explicit when you read it. Every seven years, you're to let the entire land rest for one year. Don't farm. Talk about countercultural. Then you really want to get countercultural, especially in our society. Every seven, seven years or 49 years, there's the year of Jubilee when all debts are forgiven. And if you had to sell your land because you were poor, you got it back. If you had to sell yourself into slavery to work it off, you were done. You were freed. It's this idea of release and everything is kind of reset. And the whole goal of this is to remind people that you were made for freedom, for rest, for partnership, not to be enslaved, not to work constantly under the sweat of your brow. That's not how God meant it to be. It's meant to remind you that God was never, didn't create you to relate to him only through rituals and through a tabernacle. You were meant to walk with him in a garden face to face as we sang about a minute ago. Like, that's the goal. Even later, King Solomon builds this elaborate permanent temple. And he like, after all this work, I mean, a lot of money, a lot of time, he's like, eh, God, you don't really, you're not really gonna be contained in this. This is literally what he says. He's like making light of it while he's doing it, which is great. Like, he's like, he says that God cannot be contained in the highest heavens. He says, much less this temple that I've built. So we don't make much of buildings and things. It's not what it's ultimately about. See, the point wasn't all the festivals or the weekly Sabbaths or the Jubilees. Man was not made to ritualistically do those. Man was not made to keep a Sabbath. Sabbath was made to help remind the man that there's something bigger going on. Don't forget it. To give a small glimpse in the middle of a tiring, frustrated, striving world to stop and breathe and rest and receive and partner. That's what Sabbath is all about. That's what releasing debts and freedom is all about. The word forgiveness, the root word, release of sins. So it's looking back to Genesis 1, but also there's this drumbeat that makes you look forward to something coming. There's a year of the Lord coming, a jubilee coming, an eternal Sabbath that was started in the garden. It's going to come one day in its fullness. 
Isaiah 61 explicitly states this. He talks about this chosen one, and this is a prophecy from Isaiah 61, one through three. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is on me. Whoever this chosen one on is, the spirit's on him. Because the Lord, Yahweh, he's anointed me, and he's gonna bring good news to the poor through me. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Every Israelite would have heard year of Jubilee. To proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, Year of Jubilee to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees, talk about garden imagery, planted by the Lord to glorify them. This is the imagery. Someone will come who will accomplish what humans have failed to do, to partner with God in bringing goodness to the entire world. And with that in mind, I want you to think about the ministry of Jesus. The gospel of Luke masterfully, like the the writers of scripture, it's incredible. I've been reminded as we've studied Genesis, just the short while we have of the, the, the beauty of the word of God. But the gospel of Luke, this author, picks up this Sabbath theme from creation in the Israel story, and he begins to retell it through the ministry of Jesus. One of the first things you see Jesus doing at 12 years old, what is he doing? He's taking up residence in his father's temple. His parents are like, where's he at? Comes back, fine. I'm like, what are you doing? He says, don't you know I must be about my father's business? I gotta be doing my father's work. I'm his image bearer. He begins his public ministry in Luke 3. I pointed this out already last week, maybe the week before. But he, he's going down into the baptismal waters and he comes out and there's the spirit descends or hovers. Same word as the spirit hovering over creation descends on him like a dove. And we're told that Jesus is the beloved son or image in whom God is well pleased. And then you get this like weird cut to Luke's story and guess what he gives you? A genealogy. Luke 3.23, look how he starts it. He says, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be, I love the way he says this, thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, and he goes through this long list of people. And at the end, it says, son of Enos, this is talking about Jesus, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. The word Adam simply means man. Jesus here is presented as the son of man and the son of God, the true human, the true God-man to do here on earth what humanity failed at. And guess what the very next story is in keeping with this creation narrative? He is sent out to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. The devil manipulates the word of God just like he did in the garden. But Jesus as the true Adam, the true Adam, the true human stays faithful, trusts the word of God. And then right after that happens, the next story Luke tells us is this one. Luke 4, 16 through 21. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is Jesus towards the very beginning of his public ministry. As usual, it's what he usually did. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Luke talks about the Sabbath a lot and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. He then rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. This is it, church. It's all about Jesus. It's the true temple, the true meeting place of heaven and earth in which God and humanity dwell. He's the true human, the one who stays faithful and perfectly images God. He's the true Sabbath, the true year of Jubilee through which we enter into eternal rest. And if you follow Jesus' ministry and Luke, it's characterized by him bringing true freedom to people, either through physical release of ailments and healing them, or through forgiving them of their sins and releasing them from their sins. And most of these miracles take place on the Sabbath, and people are upset and ticked off about it. He's like, you're missing the point. Sabbath wasn't made for man. Man, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And this story leads all the way up to Jesus' death. So I got killed because he kept claiming to be the son of man. That's the moniker that Jesus uses for himself more than any other. This is the idea of imaging, deity language. I am representing God. And a lot of people at the time didn't like that because they called themselves deity. And so he goes to the cross where he surrenders himself to the spirit and he takes on death itself. He gives himself up to redeem humanity and bring us back into a true rest. We see more decreation language. Luke records the sky going dark as Jesus dies. The light is put out. He enters into the result of our sin. But there's also this nugget as he's, as he's being killed that Luke records that the veil of the temple, this thick veil, like we can't even imagine how thick it was, is ripped in two. Because something bigger is going on. We don't need this dang temple anymore. And it's not just about us being able to peek in to this holy of holies. It's about letting it out to the entire cosmos because the true human has come and give up his life. And what does Jesus do as he's ushering in this new creation? Look how Luke points this out. Luke 23, verse 54, it says, guess what day it was? It was the preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin. So this is Friday night. The women who had come with him, because their Sabbath starts on Friday night. We don't, our calendar doesn't work that way. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and they rested on the Sabbath. Luke is pointing this out on purpose according to the commandment. Like God at creation, Jesus rests on the Sabbath. But on the eighth day, or as Luke calls it, the first day of the next week, what happens? This is intentional. The first day, evening, morning, first day, Jesus gets back up and he rises again to conquer death and hell and Hades. He, he stomps on the head of the serpent. And what is he doing? He's ushering in the new creation. He's bringing life for all who trust in his life, death, burial, resurrection, like we just saying. It's the only hope we have. It's how we are entered into this new family, become part of this new creation. It's by faith alone. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, his likeness. Hebrews says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this, the exact imprint of his nature. You can't get any more explicit than this. And that after he made purifications for sins, he takes up residence. He sits down on the throne of the majesty of high. 
He fulfills the creation story and he doesn't go alone. He invites us all into union with him. That's why Hebrews can pick up on this motif of rest and say, guess what, church? That rest still remains for the people of God and don't fail to enter into that Sabbath. It's available for you through Christ. And this is your invitation, no matter who you are, no matter how you come in here, no matter your baggage, no matter your background, no matter what you think or what the world says about you, you are invited to take up your true calling to enter into the royal priesthood, to become a king and a queen, not serving with arrogance and demanding stuff, but like God, laying down your own life, reconciling, imaging God to the world. That's why the primary language Paul uses when he talks about our sanctification process, one of the primary ones he uses in the New Testament authors uses us being formed into the image or likeness of Jesus. You are being made into who Christ has created you to be. That's why Jesus can stand up and say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is all just like the nation of Israel who was tasked with looking back and looking forward. So are we. This will all be consummated someday. Go read the end of the story in Revelation and pick up on the language. It's an eternal cosmic dwelling place where God communes and lives with his people. That's what's going on. And we're told we'll rule and reign with him as his image bearers. There's no temple because the whole earth is the temple. There's life-giving waters that flow from the throne just like waters flowed from Eden. There's trees whose leaves heal the nation just like the tree of life was given. We'll work and labor from and for joy, no sin in the way. And so we live now in the now not yet or the already not yet. There's a piece of this that's been completed. You are freed from your sin. You are released. You have received that year of jubilee. The work is finished. Hebrews says, so rest from your work just like God rests from his. Quit trying to earn it. You can't. But we also live in the reality that sin and brokenness still exist. And so the church, this is your call, church. This is your application. What do we do with this? We are tasked with, by the spirit of God, that's the only way it can happen, by being the kingdom of priests. That's what we're called as the church. To live radical, countercultural lives. And it's not just showing up to a Sunday gathering in a building. It's all of life, church. It's never ending. It's your vocation, whatever it is God has called you to do or placed you in, in this season, and you might not love it, but there's something like supernatural going on as you work with your hands and give your might to whatever it is you're called to do. It's not just a job. You're reflecting the creator, God. Even in our recreation, the things we enjoy, you're not just taking a break, just living for the weekend. Feast and enjoy good gifts. You know, in Acts 2, when like, like the spirit of God is moving, probably more maybe than any time in church history, right? Like, boom, people are getting saved. It says people are in awe. And you know what one of the responses of them being in awe of the magnificent God is? They gather and eat food with joyful and sincere hearts. I mean, that's an evidence and a picture of being a kingdom of priests, enjoying good gifts. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, to image Christ. We can sacrifice our lives, lose them, knowing that we'll find them. We can love our enemies even, like Christ loved us, with the hope that they'll move from slave to son and find their identity as royal priest of God. 
We can settle in. If you're an employer, you try to create a, a, a place of a cultivating life and shalom and treating your employees well. If you're uh, making a home, a place to live in. That's why, yes, and we're really bad at like hanging paintings on the wall and making our own. Chris is like, I think maybe we can finally do that because I hate moving, like I told you, so we don't do it. But um, maybe we should um, because it's, it's making this place of shalom and, and, and being. And, and, and the, the great thing is we do it not as worshiping it. We've got to have this job, this security, this home, but rather as, as evidence of who we are in Christ. Trusting that God has hoarded our days. He set your boundaries. He's going to take care of you. Just live in them. Flourish. Have fun. Enjoy life uh, to the glory of God. That's how Paul says it in close. Let me read this passage. Acts 17, 24 through 29. Paul's making his appeal to a people who don't know God and pick up on all this language. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands. That's how all the deities of the ancient Near East were. Humans were just there to be slaves, not God. As though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring or image or sons and daughters, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human heart, art, and imagination. Paul's making the case that you were made for more to be God's image bearers in the world, to bring a foretaste of heaven on earth. And this can only be done as we are indwelt by the spirit of God in our midst. And that's what Jesus came to bring, to continue and fulfill the plan that God started at creation, to bring redemption to the entire cosmos. And so may we be brought to awe and worship and surrender by these truths. And may we join in the project that God has given us to fill the earth with the glory of God, through the everyday, ordinary making of disciples of all nations, reconciling the world to God through Christ. Let's pray.